Turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Hebrews, chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1, as was what was read earlier for us here this morning. And all we're going to have time for here this morning is a brief introduction into chapter 7 because we have this thing called a child dedication service uh, that we need to get to here this morning. And as you know, uh, 20 minutes is just not enough time for me to go through the book of Hebrews. It's it's not even enough time for me to get through verse 1. So... um, so anyway, we won't have time to dig real deep, but I want to make sure we leave plenty enough time for the child dedication service here this morning. So this morning, we're just going to tip our toes into this chapter, get a quick overview of uh, some of the things that we're going to encounter in the coming weeks. Now, we've already been introduced to the main leading characters, if you will, leading up to this chapter. Clearly, so far, our theme for the book of Hebrews is what? Jesus is... Jesus is superior. Jesus is better. Okay, Jesus is better uh, than what? Well, he's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than even Aaron, the high priest. And this idea of Jesus as the great high priest has been woven through our chapters from the very beginning. Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles open, uh, turn back to Hebrews chapter 1 for just a second. Because I want you to see how the author of Hebrews has been really kind of weaving in what he's trying to get to in chapters 7 through 10. Okay, Because he wants to explain to you why it's important that we understand that Jesus is not just like any other high priest. He's a great high priest. And what that means to us as believers. So chapter 1, verse 3 We saw, remember, these are in the seven glories of Christ. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 3 said, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by his word of his power. When he made purification of sins, that's a priestly duty, purification of our sins, right? Then look at chapter 2, verse 17. Kind of work your way forward a little bit. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make what? Propitiation, right? That's the appeasing of God's wrath for the sins of the people. Who did that for the people? The priests did that. But they're talking about Christ here. So here we see these allusions. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And then who could forget chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, where again the author of Hebrews brings us back to this theme again. All of this is pointing towards where we're going to be in chapter 7. Chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, in case you were wondering who that is, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Okay? All of these things pointing to this role of a high priest and how important that was. Then we're going to get to chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. And the author of Hebrews has been explaining to us, way back in chapter 5, he was reminding us again, this is what a typical priest would do. And he was about, remember, to go in and explain how Jesus was different than that when he went into this big warning passage that started in verse 11 of chapter 5 and went all the way to verse 20 of chapter 6. Remember that whole warning? He said, listen, you're not ready to handle this truth about why Jesus is the great high priest and what that means to you. And he kind of admonishes them there, right? And then at the end of chapter 6, he encourages those uh, true believers and say, I know you're not like those who are only professing Christ and you're ready to handle this because in chapter 7, he's going to pick it right back up again and say, now, let me explain to you why this is so important. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he also in another passage said, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of what kind of salvation? Eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is, we've met, obviously spent a lot of time with Jesus, obviously, in his first six chapters. And chapter 7, verse 1, is the hinge for the rest of what he's going to say. It's really the focal point of what he's been trying to get across, of why Jesus is better. But here we see in these verses we get to meet someone called Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In fact, prior to the epistle in Hebrews, we only see his name in Scripture two other times. Two times. Once in Genesis 14. And once in Psalm 110. That's it. Two times. Now, how can a guy that's mentioned only twice in all of Scripture to this point be so integral to the argument of why Jesus is the great high priest and why that is so important to understand? That very question has left many people to ask, who is this guy? Who is Melchizedek? There have been a lot of speculation about who he is. Some people believe that he's the pre-incarnate Jesus, that he's a theophany, a God appearing. Some people uh, dismiss that and ensure us that he was indeed just a man, although albeit a very special man, as the text tells us. He was both a king and a priest. Why is that significant? Because uh, kings were not supposed to be priests. They were two separate functions under the law. Matter of fact, for those who, kings who tried to be a priest, and we'll look at this again later, it doesn't work out very well when a king tries to be a priest. Matter of fact, God's wrath is evident when that happens. But this person, Melchizedek, was both a king and a priest. Is that significant? 
Yes, it is. That was something that could not happen again. But we also know from Psalm 10, verse 4, that the priests from the order of Melchizedek were priests forever. Now, how can a priest of flesh and blood, like you and me, have a priesthood that's eternal? That's one of the questions we want to look at here. How is it that Jesus is from this eternal priesthood, and he's our great high priest eternally? How does that happen? And how is it that Jesus is from this priesthood and not from the Levitical priesthood like every other priest? I thought the Bible told us that every priest had to come from the tribe of Levi and that every high priest had to be from the line of Aaron. But Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. And our text tells us he's from the order of Melchizedek, not from Aaron. So how is it even possible that he is a priest? So many questions about this mysterious person who has such a phenomenal influence, especially since we know so little about him. Lastly, we do not know about we do know about Melchizedek from Genesis. One thing we do know is that he had an encounter with a guy named Abram. And we've been looking at Abram, later to be Abraham's life, in great detail. He'd been held up for us as an ex excellent example of someone who had great faith and endurance, and one who obtained the promises of God because he waited patiently for God. Though his faith through his faith in God's promises, he waited patiently. How long did he have to wait? 25 years he had to wait. But this time, Abraham is highlighted for a different reason, and the reason that Abraham is highlighted in our passage this time will be because he encountered this guy, Melchizedek. And something happened when they met that presents a type for us, an example, a shadow of things to come. Why is that important? How does that all fit together? Well, you'll need to come back next time for me to answer those questions. Are you excited? Of course you are. I am. What's more exciting than God's Word? But beyond that, let me just add this. Your understanding of Jesus' great high priest ministry has a lot to do with your understanding of who Melchizedek is. Because most of the time when you run across this name, you're thinking, who, who is this guy? Why do I need to know him? And how is this even significant? How could a guy who's only been mentioned twice in all of Scripture, 1,300 pages of God's holy word, we see his name in there twice until we get to the book of Hebrews. How can that guy be so significant? But your understanding of what the Jesus as a great high priest, his ministry is tied to Melchizedek. So you need to understand who he is. And if you understand why Christ's high priest ministry is so far superior than any other high priest ministry, then you'll know what that means for us today. That, my friends, is a tremendous encouragement to us all when we can truly grasp what that, what that means to us as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we really understand what's happening and what ministry Christ is doing, even now, as our great high priest. It will be a source of great encouragement, I promise you. All right, well, let's move now to the children's dedication ceremony.